We are looking at uh, another psalm this week. We looked at one last week, and uh, we'll look at one this morning, Psalm 133. We're just in a two-week interlude between a ser- two sermon series. We finished up First Peter. Uh, now we're moving on to the Gospel of John. Uh, we're titling it, Come and See. An opportunity to see who Jesus is through his life and his work. A wonderful series in which to invite uh, friends to tune in online or come in person at 830. Uh, We hope it is an engaging uh, set of messages as we consider his work in that gospel. Let's, uh, Let's pray towards Psalm 133 today. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your goodness and grace to us. We thank you for the unity that you've given us as your people. And as we consider this wonderful psalm of praise to you for what you've brought about in our lives, Lord, we pray that we might apply it to our lives and live and lean into it for your glory, for your kingdom's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Walter Harris, he was a minister at a congregational church in Dunbarton, New Hampshire. Uh, He writes, we must notice with sorrow the violent political dissensions in our land as a sore judgment upon us. Men do not think alike in regards to political characters or political measures. And on account of this division, in sentiment, men of the same neighborhood have become the most virulent enemies to one another. They cannot speak peaceably to one another, nor enjoy neighborly discourse with uh, which once used to constitute one of their greatest sources of happiness. These divisions forebode approaching ruin. That wasn't written in August of 2020. Those words were spoken by Reverend Harris in 1812 uh, in a Thanksgiving sermon that he was preaching at a remarkably turbulent period in the history of our nation. And so, you know, perhaps we should take great solace in the fact that here we are 200 years later Uh, We're still standing in one piece. But nevertheless, it seems like we're at a crossroads again, a precarious moment in which a spirit of division is blanketing our nation, and it threatens to undo us as a people. Those who claim to represent justice burn down buildings, face property. They scream in the faces of the elderly, demanding allegiance to their cause, while others who call themselves patriots, they walk threateningly through the streets of our cities, carrying, you know, rifles and, and looking for a confrontation. The pandemic doubters who believe COVID is a hoax They're grappling to the death with 
the pandemic moralists who are ready to lock anyone up who might put an open sign in their window or fail to wear a mask. We must be free of tyranny, one side roars. We, we must protect ourselves from stupidity, the other side slashes back. Insult after insult is lobbed back and forth between political camps on the right and left, the barrage of caustic words, these cutting, hurtful, vindictive comments just are, are more evil than the last. And now before us looms an ominous election where every one of these factions hold a life stake no matter how the vote uh, turns out. They're, they're all digging in saying, look, we're not going to concede this no matter what happens, no, no matter how this vote turns out. Accusations of coming voter fraud are wielded like a hammer and they're met with an equally destructive force of weaponized accusations of voter suppression. It's black against white, red against blue, dreamers versus the wall, justice for the oppressed against law and order, science against common sense, rugged individualism against systemic racism, righteous mob, against righteous mob. And I know that some of you feel like you're just caught in the middle of all this. You absolutely support your black brothers and sisters as they speak of the deep wounds they carry connected to the history of our nation. But at the same time, you know, you appreciate the leadership and sacrifice like of men like Washington and and Jefferson, who, who helped birth our very nation. Or you understand the authentic threat of COVID. It's real. But on the other hand, you also are troubled by the impact our response is having upon our churches, upon our schools, upon our economy. And most of the time, you just keep your mouth shut because you're afraid that you might be labeled as a hater by one side or the other if you point out a strength or a weakness of the viewpoint or argument of one side or the other. And in fact, there, there's truth on every side of these multiple chasms, but it's being mixed by an unseen hand in vials of self-deception and arrogance and pride. And, and it's producing an elixir dripping with poisonous discord, saturated with deadly division. And because of this, everyone is being pulled almost irresistibly so onto one side or the other, tearing at the threads which had previously held the fabric of our nation together. And these divisions, they're not just a nat national phenomena. 
They're seeping into our church. They're seeping into and manifesting themselves in our homes. And so what are the people of God supposed to do at a time like this? Well, our psalm this morning paints a very different picture, doesn't it? Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, David says in Psalm 133. What a refreshing reality at this moment is offered for anyone willing to take to heart what lies behind these verses. It's like a life-giving rain falling upon a parched land, producing good and pleasant pastures saturated in blessing. This unity which David speaks of. What, what, where does this come from? Where does this, what's the source of this unity spoken about in this psalm and throughout the scriptures that saturates those who experience it with such blessing? Well, a moment ago we read Ephesians 4 that told us straight out where the source of this blessed unity comes from. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Hear that? The unity, it's, it's a work of the spirit. Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is uh, in all and through all. This amazing gift of unity spoken about in the Scriptures, it only comes through a miraculous work of God and his intervention, the intervention of the one true living God. It's a work of the Spirit who brings about peace and oneness among a people of vast diversity. And that's what Psalm 133 points out as well. You may know that Psalm 133 is found uh, within a subset of psalms, they're called the Psalms of Ascents, which span from Psalm 120 to 134. And if you look at all these psalms, one of the things you'll realize about them is that they're really pretty short. Most of them are eight verses or left. In fact, Psalm 133 and 134, the last two, Psalm 133, the one we're looking at, they're only three verses each. Well, why is that? It's because these were, these were short psalms that were packaged together like choruses, short choruses to be sung while traveling to a very special place, traveling to Jerusalem. Sometimes we call it Zion as well. Scripture calls this place Zion uh, because Zion was one of the hills or the small mountains or mounts in which Jerusalem was built upon. So you were always traveling up to Jerusalem or ascending up to Zion. And that's why these psalms are called Psalms of Ascents. And as a package together, these psalms, they, you know, they, they have the same kind of focus and theme and uh, they, they rally around the same ideas and they play off of one another. 
Uh, and, and they culminate, of course, then in Psalm 133 and 134, these last two psalms of ascents. They're the climax of these 15 psalms organized together. What, what is then the fruit of what has been declared in Psalm 133, this unity? What's been spoken about in the previous psalms that uh, this psalm declares uh, in fullness? Well, Psalm 120, the first psalm of ascent. It, it starts out, my distress, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Psalm 121 begins, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Psalm 123 starts out, to you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens Psalm 124 begins, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then we would have been swallowed alive. At the heart of the Psalms, uh, these Psalms of Ascent, is an enthusiastic, bold declaration of God's sovereign work, his deliverance, his providence, his protection of his people. And every time they went to Jerusalem singing these songs, it proved the point. Because if you go back to Exodus as Israel was emerging from Egypt and moving towards the promised land, the Lord made a very special promise in the midst of what he spoke to his people. He, he, he said that he would establish a unique place for his people to gather in unity. You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and your special gifts, what you vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And you are to rejoice before the Lord the Lord says in Deuteronomy 12. The establishment of this location was the crowning fulfillment of all the promises made by God to his people during the Exodus. This place where he would meet with his people, where they could rest and delight and celebrate in the Lord's very presence. And so that's what Israel did. Three times a year, God's people would travel up to Jerusalem, to the temple, singing these choruses to celebrate the festival of Passover, which celebrated that transformative event that allowed them to escape from Egypt. And they would uh, celebrate the festival of Pentecost, which in part was a celebration of the law being given to the people at Mount Sinai. And then later they would uh, celebrate the festival of, uh, of the tabernacles, which was a reenactment of going uh, into the desert, living in tents, reenacting when God protected his people as they dwelt uh, there 
on the way to the promised land. So going to Jerusalem was the symbolic culmination of God's deliverance of his people. Behold how good and pleasant it was it is when brothers dwell in unity, the psalm says. Why? Because promise made, promise kept. The Lord is with his people. He heard them cry. He's rescued them. He's given them victory over and rest from their enemies. And he continues to protect them and provide for them. And we know it all to be true because here we are headed to Jerusalem to celebrate his goodness and his grace and his mercy in Zion. Mark last week uh, mentioned the many Patriot Super Bowl victories uh, we've celebrated, which I have to confess to you, Mark, that I disagree with you. I, I just never get tired of actually celebrating, uh, celebrating them. I do once in a while feel guilty uh, for how many we've won. And as I said back in January, I was glad that we allowed uh, a couple other teams to you know, have a chance to hold the trophy and celebrate for one year. But if you ever attended one of these parades, which follows the victory, you know, I'll be out in the street, thousands of people, I'll be standing, I'm the pastor, you know, and and right next to me is this like beer gutted guy with a t-shirt up here with a blue Patriots face on, and there'll be a, a Chinese woman from Chinatown who doesn't speak English waving a banner, and an immigrant from uh, Chelsea, and a, a lawyer from the high you know, br- f- uh, practice right there. And we're all standing together. We love being there together. We're rejoicing together. We don't care what we look like, who we are. We just love each other. We love being here because we are in the midst of this great city with the victors in the center of your midst, of our midst, who've won it all for us. That's just a little picture of what this unity and celebration that Psalm 133 starts out talking about. But David, of course, doesn't compare this uh, unity, this experience to the patriots. Uh, He instead, he says this unity is like the oil running down Aaron's beard and dripping down onto his robes. And then he says, it's like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. If you don't know who Aaron is, Aaron was Moses' brother and the Lord Uh, directed him to be appointed to oversee the tabernacle uh, as a priest and his family to do so. The tabernacle was like this moving, mobile temple that was in the center of the people of God as they walked through the desert and into the promised land. And, And later Aaron's descendants were also then identified as those who would serve in the temple that built of stone in Uh, Jerusalem itself. And uh, the Lord directed Moses to anoint Aaron with oil. In fact, he directed Moses to put oil everywhere, anoint, 
put oil on all of the tabernacle, just saturate it here. Why? You know, what's, what's the point of this, uh, this oil? Well, in a functional sense, it identified Aaron as being special, as being set apart. Uh, he, he's different than everything else that didn't have oil. And you know that's actually what holy means, right? That's what holy means. It means being set apart. Something that was common which now was made special or given a special purpose. And to drive home that reality, uh, Aaron actually wore a plate on his turban directed by the Lord that said, holy to the Lord. Uh, So you couldn't miss the idea that this guy is set apart to serve the Lord in this special way. So this oil was, in a functional sense, set him apart as being holy. But still, the question, why oil? Like, why not something else? Why oil? Why is oil chosen? Well, I can say three things about that. Oil was something that the, uh, in that day, was the primary source of light, of generated light, uh, that lamps gave off light because of oil. Oil was the source of energy. You could even say that oil gave life to fire and light and it caused darkness to be vanquished. Oil was also used as a balm medicinally. Oil, in other words, it restored life. And the anointing oil that was used uh, by, placed upon Aaron, it, the base of it was olive oil, but then they threw in a number of other uh, incense and, uh, and things uh, to create this wonderful fragrance, things like sweet cinnamon and myrrh. This oil smelled fantastic. Why, why was it so fragrant and, and beautiful? to smell. It's because things that smelled bad were associated with death. A couple years ago, I, uh, Laura and I began to notice a foul smell coming from underneath our bed. And uh, I finally investigated and I found a dead mouse that was left as a gift to us from our very thoughtful and generous cat, Jade. Is dead and it smelled bad. But on the other hand, things that smelled beautiful, they, they pointed to life. Uh, they, think of a flower blossoming and, it, and, it, and its fullness, at its peak bloom. This is this full and vibrant of life. So all that is to say, whatever way you look at this oil, it pointed to the reality of life-giving power. A life that made death go away, that made darkness go away. And this symbolic representation of life-giving substance, in turn, was representative of the life-giving spirit of God, the one who gives life and sustains life. Oil marked Aaron as separate 
apart in a unique way to live and move and have his being and serve the very presence of God who was the very source of life for his people. So just as Ephesians 4 declares the unity spoken about in Psalm 133 is a life-giving reality brought about by the presence of a life-giving spirit of God. But then David, he goes on to say, this unity is like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. And that could probably be taken three different ways with truthful applications to each of them. One, uh, the word urad, uh, our Bible translation, it's, it's translating it as falling. And I guess you could picture that in a poetical sense. Mount Zion is a 9,000 foot massive mountain. And Mount, I'm sorry, let me say it again. Mount Hermon is a 9,000 foot massive mountain. Mount Zion, on the other hand, is a 2,500-foot 20, 2, mountain, a uh, little guy. Uh, and you know, Mount, Mount Hermon, it's snow-capped. You can see it from everywhere. So, you know, you could, you could picture Mount Hermon and Mount Zion, and it's filled with dew, and it's just pouring down uh, its dew on Hermon. And, so maybe the point behind it is this volume of life and blessing and unity that's poured out upon and in the midst of God's people. Uh, and do, of course, just like oil has this idea of life behind it, life-giving, this water is life-giving. Life but if you know anything about the geography of the the promised land of, of that area, uh, you know that Mount Hermon is as far north as you can go in the promised land, very, very northern uh, segment of it, while Mount Zion is down in the southern part, 225 miles away. So you kind of think, okay, how can that fall on this way over here? Um, but again, if you look at a Bible map, you'll see that the Jordan River um, springs out of that area of Mount Hermon. Then it eventually goes through the Sea of Galilee, keep on going down through the Promised Land, eventually getting to the uh, southern part, Judah, where the mountain ranges of Zion would be, you know, a part of it, and then Jordan, the Jordan River goes into the Dead Sea. So uh, maybe that's what it means. This word urad, it doesn't have to mean falling. It can mean kind of uh, going down uh, in, like uh, Abraham goes down into Egypt. Same word, moving in a certain direction, kind of downward. And, and so maybe the idea behind it is this vastness that expands from the northern part of the promised land all the way to the southern part. Everybody who is a part of God's people experience this blessing of unity and oneness, the Lord's victory among us. So that could be 
the case as well. But I think there's something else going on here. David puts Mount Zion and Mount Hermon right next to each other for, I think, actually a different reason. Uh, There's a couple places in scripture where Mount Hermon is spoken of in a positive light, like Psalm 89. For instance, says, you created the north and the south, Tabor and Hermon, sing for joy at your name. That's Psalm 89, but it's not actually a psalm written by David. Uh, he, he wrote two psalms where he mentions Hermon. I'll, I'll tell you about the other one in a second. Because when you actually look through scripture, most of the time when you look at Mount Hermon, it's associated with opposition to God. Judges 3 calls the mount, uh, that mountain, it's called Baal Hermon. It's identified as the central uh, place of Baal worship in that region. 20 different pagan temples have been excavated on Mount Hermon. Why? Because you see, the, the higher you go, in pagan thought, the higher the mountain was, that's where you would most likely come uh, to meet the gods. You'd, you'd be able to reach the gods like they tried to build that Tower of Babel to reach the gods. Or maybe the other way around, the higher you are, the more lucky you might be that they'll come down and interact with you in some way. That's probably why the extra-biblical book called the Book of Enoch identified Mount Hermon as the place where the fallen angels descended and had relations with human women that produced the Nephilim in Genesis 6. This region where Hermon was located was also called Bashan, which some scholars translate as the place of the serpent. Deuteronomy identifies the king of Bashan as a man named Og, who is identified as a giant sleeping on an iron bed that's dimensions mirrored the Tower of Babel. I wonder why. And so God directs Moses and Israel to wipe that whole area out on their way to the promised land. The name of Hermon itself means to devote to destruction. So it's not surprising when David talks about Mount Hermon in his other psalm. He says in Psalm 68, he says, O mountains or O mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peak mountains, at the mountain that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. And so he writes in Psalm 133, 3, our psalm, it says, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. You see, there's a stark contrast going 
on here. Underline this verse. It's not Hermon where life is given, where the dew is falling, where life flourishes, where everlasting life is experienced, where brothers dwell in unity. It's Mount Zion. Hermon was the place of destruction. Zion was the place of life. It's a movement out of the culture of division and deception and death and godlessness of Hermon and into the provision of life and goodness and peace evermore in the presence of the one true living God at Zion. So it shouldn't surprise us that in the New Testament we read of the saving work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, accomplished where? In Jerusalem, the city of Zion. That's where God provides life evermore for his people. The writer of Hebrews equates Zion with the work of Christ, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels and joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. And then he says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Christ is Zion. Zion is Christ. But this massive mountain of Hermon seems to be towering over us today doesn't it? And all that Herman represents just feels so palpable within our nation today. We're watching our nation cannibalize itself before our eyes, radiating a growing stench of death. So what are we to do about this? When Walter Harris preached his Thanksgiving sermon, the War of 1812 against the British was going bad. The economy was in the tank. James Madison had just won his second term as president in a bruising and bloody fight. Our nation was in a dire state. But something else was going on. Something else was unfolding at the same time. We now call it the second great awakening. A great movement of God's spirit was sweeping across the nation as he called and drew men and women to himself. In the midst of a desperate time, God began to pour out his fragrant, healing, life-giving oil as he took people from Hermon and brought them to Zion. Thousands and thousands turned to Christ. Heart after heart was changed. Indeed, the very countenance of our nation, of our country, was renewed. 
Harris talks about all this in his sermon. He he says the gospel is called God's unspeakable gift and without it we would be reduced to all wretchedness and misery. We would lose the knowledge of the true God and the way to life by his son Jesus Christ. And listen, he says, a spirit of propagating the gospel was never awake or more zealous than at this time. While infidels are spreading blood and carnage through the earth, the friends of Christ, the sons of peace, are engaged in promoting the kingdom, not with worldly pomp and greatness, but in righteousness, in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. By the word of prophecy, we are assured that the gospel temple will be built in troubled times, he says. Was there ever a time of universal commotion such as this, Harris writes? Well, Reverend Harris, welcome to 2020. He goes on to say, but what do we behold on the other hand? The friends of Zion are now awake, sharing the gospel of life, the messengers of the gospel, flying in every direction under heaven, declaring peace on earth, goodwill to mankind. This I consider as the brightest hope in the midst of the dark cloud hanging over this earth. It gives me the most living hope that the cloud ere long be dissipated and the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his beams, he declared in 1812. Well, it's 2020. Friends of Christ, sons and daughters of peace. You've been given God's unspeakable gift, the gospel of life. You've been anointed with the fragrance of Aaron to call people from Hermon, to walk beside them and to lead them to Zion. And there the Lord will bestow upon them blessing and life evermore. The gospel temple will be built in troubled times. You've been entrusted with the brightest hope to shine in the midst of the gathering dark clouds to bring healing to the people. Life is not found in Trump. Life is not found in Biden. Life is not found in the Patriot Party. Life is not found in Antifa. Life is not found in the World Health Organization. Life is not found in Black Lives Matter. Life and hope and unity and peace and joy are found in Jesus Christ. This country, indeed the world, they. It needs the people of God to rise up arm in arm, black and white, Asian and Latino, children and teenagers and parents and the elderly, gas station attendants, city clerks, 
chief executive offers, any, any and all those who understand the goodness and grace and mercy that's been shown to them by the great work of deliverance that's been accomplished for them by Jesus Christ and point to Christ, speak about Christ, sing in one accord about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not time to keep your mouths closed in fear of how people will respond to you. It's time to speak up, to speak about Christ, the only hope in this life and the life to come. The world needs to see the body of Christ, the people of God. They need to see us look differently to speak differently, to live differently, to love differently compared to everything else that is unraveling around us. We're to be a people of humility and kindness and gentleness and for, uh, expressing forgiveness to one another. Uh, we would love not seeking to be serve, but we'd love to serve. We'd rather take the plank out of our own eye rather than pointing at the speck of the eyes of others. We, we don't want to demand our own rights be upheld, but we want to look to the interests of others before our own. And most of all, we just can't allow anything to break our bonds of mutual affection for one another. That's what we have to rally around as the people of God. That's the prayer Jesus prayed for us the night before he was crucified. He prayed, may they be one as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity, he prayed. And he says, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved me and you've loved them. You see, it's through this unity where a vast diversity exists that we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in the most winsome of ways. Herman wants to pit man against man. Zion, listen, Zion is a new creation made up of every nation, every tribe, every color, every ethnicity, every tongue, every life circumstance who are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another through Christ, who indeed becomes a beautiful, fragrant, dew-filled, life-giving, unified people, saturated in the blessing of God forevermore. So what should you do? You should pray more fervently than ever that God would pour out his spirit and produce such a unified reality among us through his great work. And let's live and let's speak 
unashamedly to this world about Christ to that end. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would be kind to us. Lord, we deserve everything that's going on around us this day because of our unfaithfulness to you. But we again ask as you've had, have done throughout this world in little places and great nations, you pour out your spirit and bring about a new reality, a new creation of people unified because of your sacrificial work on our behalf. Oh Lord, would you do that again? Would you unify your people here at Park Street and the other churches across this city, around this nation, to call people from Hermon to Zion? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.